0: Mr. Thipps wakes up to discover a dead body in his bathtub, wearing nothing but a pair of pince nez. So many questions. Dorothy Sayers, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. A big thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you. I know we're all going through some stuff right now, and we really appreciate you doing what you can. It really helps us out. And in case you've forgotten, a $5 donation gets you an $8 coupon code for any audiobook in the store. And if you just want to shoot us a few bucks to say thanks, that's awesome. There is now a donate button on the website at classictalesaudiobooks.com, where you can do just that. I've begun doing special pricing for financial supporters. What does that mean? Well, once you log into the website, financial supporters with subscriptions can access customer pricing for The Last of the Mohicans, The Lost World, The Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, Wuthering Heights, and The War of the Worlds. So they can purchase these titles using only their monthly coupon codes or buy them for a reduced price. Just another way to make your dollars stretch. Looking for a unique Christmas gift? We've added more designs to our merchandise site. Check out our merch store for unique gift ideas for yourself or a literature lover in your life. Right now, the sale is still going on where everything is 35% off. On the app side of things, we're doing poetry again. App users can hear Tulucasta Going to the Wars by Richard Lovelace in the special features portion for this week's episode. This week, we begin Whose Body by Dorothy L. Sayers. Lord Peter Whimsey is an aristocrat whose hobby is solving crime. A couple things to note in this story. It was published in 1923. That was after World War I, but before the Jewish Holocaust of World War II. Whimsy suffers from PTSD from the war, and it's interesting to see how it's handled at this time. Just a little hint to have compassion for those who might be acting in ways we don't understand. You never know what's going on under the surface. Another thing I wanted to mention is the handling of Jewish terms and epithets. Again, this book was written over a hundred years ago, in a time before the Jewish Holocaust of World War II. When I read this, it really struck me how mainstream anti-Semitic sentiment was at the time. So, with those two disclaimers out of the way, let's go on with the show. And now, Whose Body, Part 1 of 7, by Dorothy Sayers. Chapter 1 Oh, dear. "'Damn!' said Lord Peter Whimsey at Piccadilly Circus. "'Drive, eh?' The taxi-man, irritated at receiving this appeal while negotiating the intricacies of turning into Lower Regent Street across the route of a nineteen-bus, a thirty-eight-B, and a bicycle, bent an unwilling ear. "'I've left the catalogue behind,' said Lord Peter deprecatingly. "'Uncommonly careless of me. Do you mind putting back to where we came from?' To the Savile Club, sir? No, 110 Piccadilly, just beyond. Thank you. Thought you was in a hurry, said the man, overcome with a sense of injury. I'm afraid it's an awkward place to turn in, said Lord Peter, answering the thought rather than the words. His long, amiable face looked as if it had generated spontaneously from his top hat, as white maggots breed from Gorgonzola. The taxi, under the severe eye of a policeman, "'revolved by slow jerks "'with a noise like the grinding of teeth. "'The block of new, perfect, and expensive flats "'in which Lord Peter dwelt upon the second floor "'stood directly opposite the green park, "'in a spot for many years occupied "'by the skeleton of a frustrate commercial enterprise. "'As Lord Peter let himself in, "'he heard his man's voice in the library, "'uplifted in that throttled stridency "'peculiar to well-trained persons using the telephone. "'I believe that's his lordship just coming in again, "'if your grace would kindly hold the line a moment. "'What is it, Bunter?' "'Her grace is just called up from Denver, my lord. "'I was just saying your lordship has gone to the sale "'when I heard your lordship's latch-key. "'Thanks,' said Lord Peter. "'And you might find me my catalogue, would you? "'I think I must have left it in my bedroom or on the desk.' "'he sat down to the telephone "'with an air of leisurely courtesy, "'as though it were an acquaintance "'dropped in for a chat. "'Hello, mother, that you? "'Oh, there you are, dear,' "'replied the voice of the dowager duchess. "'I was afraid I'd just missed you. "'Well, you had, as a matter of fact. "'I'd just started off to Brocklebury sale "'to pick up a book or two, "'but I had to come back for the catalogue. "'What's up? "'Such a quaint thing,' said the duchess, I thought I'd tell you. you know little Mr. Thipps? Thipps? said Lord Peter. Thipps? Oh, yes. The little architect man who's doing the church roof, yes. What about him? Mrs. Throgmorton's just been in, in quite a state of mind. Sorry, Mother, I can't hear. Mrs. who? Throgmorton. Throgmorton, the vicar's wife. Oh, Throgmorton, yes. Mr. Thipps rang them up this morning. It was his day to come down, you know. "'Yes.' "'He rang them up to say he couldn't. "'He was so upset, poor little man. "'He found a dead body in his bath.' "'Sorry, mother, I can't hear. "'Found what? "'Where?' "'A dead body, dear. "'In his bath. "'What? "'No, no, we haven't finished. "'Please don't cut us off. "'Hello, hello, is that you, mother? "'Hello, mother? "'Oh, yes. "'Sorry, the girl was trying to cut us off. "'What sort of body?' "'A dead man, dear.' "'with nothing on but a pair of pince-nez. "'Mrs. Throgmorton positively blushed "'when she was telling me. "'I'm afraid people do get a little "'narrow-minded in country vicarages. "'Well, it sounds a bit unusual. "'Was it anybody he knew? "'No, dear, I don't think so. "'But, of course, he couldn't give her many details. "'She said he sounded quite distracted. "'He's such a respectable little man, "'and having the police in the house and so on "'really worried him.' "'Poor little Thips! Uncommonly awkward for him. Let's see, he lives in Battersea, doesn't he? "'Yes, dear, fifty-nine Queen Caroline mansions, opposite the park. That big block just round the corner from the hospital. I thought perhaps you'd like to run around and see him, and ask if there's anything we can do. I always thought him a nice little man.' "'Oh, quite,' said Lord Peter, grinning at the telephone. "'The Duchess was always of the greatest assistance "'to his hobby of criminal investigation, "'though she never alluded to it "'and maintained a polite fiction of its non-existence. "'What time did it happen, mother? "'I think he found it early this morning, "'but, of course, he didn't think of telling "'the Throgmortons just at first. "'She came up to me just before lunch, "'so tiresome I had to ask her to stay. "'Fortunately, I was alone.' I DON'T MIND BEING BORED MYSELF, BUT I HATE HAVING MY GUESTS BORED. POOR OLD MOTHER. WELL, THANKS AWFULLY FOR TELLING ME. I THINK I'LL SEND BUNTER TO THE sale AND TODDLE ROUND TO BATTERSEA NOW, AND TRY AND CONSOLE THE POOR LITTLE BEAST. SO LONG. GOOD-BYE, DEAR. BUNTER? YES, MY LORD. HER GRACE TELLS ME THAT A RESPECTABLE BATTERSEA ARCHITECT HAS DISCOVERED A DEAD MAN IN HIS BATH. INDEED, MY LORD. That's very gratifying. Very, Bunter. Your choice of words is unerring. I wish Eton and Balliol had done as much for me. Have you found the catalogue? Here it is, my lord. Thanks. I am going to Battersea at once. I want you to attend the sale for me. Don't lose time. I don't want to miss the folio Dante, nor the de Voragine. Here you are. See? Golden Legend. Winken de Werder. 1493. Got that? "'And, I say, make a special effort for the Caxton Folio of the Four Sons of Amon. "'It's the 1489 Folio, and unique. "'Look, I've marked the lots I want, and put my outside offer against each. "'Do your best for me. I shall be back to dinner.' "'Very good, my lord. "'Take my cab and tell him to hurry. He may for you. "'He doesn't like me very much.' "'Can I?' said Lord Peter.' "'looking at himself in the eighteenth-century mirror "'over the mantelpiece. "'Can I have the heart to fluster the flustered thips further? "'That's very difficult to say quickly. "'By appearing in a top-hat and frock-coat? "'I think not. "'Tender one, he will overlook my trousers "'and mistake me for the undertaker. "'A grey suit, I fancy, neat but not gaudy, "'with a hat to tone, suits my other self better. "'Exit the amateur of first editions,' New motive introduced by Solo Bassoon. Enter Sherlock Holmes, disguised as a walking gentleman. There goes Bunter. Invaluable fellow. Never offers to do his job when you've told him to do something else. Hope he doesn't miss the four sons of Amon. Still, there is another copy of that in the Vatican. It might become available. You never know. If the Church of Rome went to pot or Switzerland invaded Italy... "'whereas a strange corpse doesn't turn up "'in a suburban bathroom more than once in a lifetime. "'At least I should think not. "'At any rate, the number of times it's happened "'with the pince-nez might be counted "'on the fingers of one hand, I imagine. "'Dear me, it's a dreadful mistake "'to ride two hobbies at once.' "'He had drifted across the passage into his bedroom "'and was changing with a rapidity "'one might not have expected from a man of his mannerisms.' He selected a dark green tie to match his socks and tied it accurately without hesitation or the slightest compression of his lips, substituted a pair of brown shoes for his black ones, slipped a monocle into a breast pocket, and took up a beautiful malacca walking-stick with a heavy silver knob. "'That's all, I think,' he murmured to himself. "'Stay, I may as well have you. You may come in useful, one never knows.' He added a flat silver match-box to his equipment, glanced at his watch, and, seeing that it was already a quarter to three, ran briskly downstairs, and, hailing a taxi, was carried to Battersea Park. Mr. Alfred Thipps was a small, nervous man, whose flaxen hair was beginning to abandon the unequal struggle with destiny. One might say that his only really marked feature was a large bruise over the left eyebrows— which gave him a faintly dissipated air, incongruous with the rest of his appearance. Almost in the same breath with his first greeting, he made a self-conscious apology for it, murmuring something about having run against the dining-room door in the dark. He was touched almost to tears by Lord Peter's thoughtfulness and condescension in calling. "'I'm sure it's most kind of your lordship,' he repeated for the dozenth time, rapidly blinking his weak little eyelids, I appreciate it very deeply, very deeply indeed. And so would Mother, only she's so deaf, and i not like to trouble you with making her understand. It's been very hard all day, he added. With the policeman in the house and all this commotion, is what Mother and me have never been used to, always living very retired. And it's most distressing to a man of regular habits, my lord, and really, I'm almost thankful Mother doesn't understand, for I'm sure it would worry her terribly if she was to know about it. She was upset at first, but she's made up some idea of her own about it now, and I'm sure it's all for the best. The old lady who sat knitting by the fire nodded grimly in response to a look from her son. "'I always said as you ought to complain about that bath, Alfred,' she said suddenly, in the high, piping voice peculiar to the deaf. "'And it's to be hoped the landlord will see about it now.' "'Not but what I think you might have managed "'without having the police in. but there. "'You always were one to make a fuss about a little thing "'from chicken pox up.' "'There now,' said Mr. Thipps apologetically. "'You see how it is. "'Not but what it's just as well she's settled on that, "'because she understands we've locked up the bathroom "'and don't try to go in there. "'But it's been a terrible shock to me, sir. "'My lord, I should say. "'But there, my nerves are all to pieces.' "'Such a thing has never happened—happened to me—in all my born days. "'Such a state I was in this morning! "'I don't know if I was on my head or my heels. "'I really didn't. "'And my heart, not being too strong, "'I hardly knew how to get out of that horrid room and telephone for the police. "'It's affected me, sir, it's affected me, it really has. "'I couldn't touch a bit of breakfast, nor lunch, neither.' "'and what with telephoning and putting off clients "'and interviewing people all morning, "'I've hardly known what to do with myself.' "'I'm sure it must have been uncommonly distressing,' "'said Lord Peter sympathetically. "'Especially coming like that before breakfast. "'Hate anything tiresome happening before breakfast. "'Takes a man at such a confounded disadvantage, what?' "'That's just it, that's just it,' said Mr. Thipps eagerly. "'When I saw that dreadful thing lying there in my bath,' Mother naked, too, except for a pair of eyeglasses. I assure you, my lord, it regularly turned my stomach, if you'll excuse the expression. I'm not very strong, sir, and I get that sinking feeling sometimes in the morning, and what with one thing and another, I had had to send the girl for a stiff brandy, or I don't know what mightn't have happened. I felt so queer, though I'm anything but partial to spirits as a rule. Still, I make it a rule never to be without brandy in the house, in case of emergency, you know. Very wise of you, said Lord Peter cheerfully. You're a very far-seeing man, Mr. Thipps. Wonderful what a little nipple do in case of need, and the less you're used to it, the more good it does you. Hope your girl is a sensible young woman, what? Nuisance to have women fainting and shrieking all over the place. Now Gladys is a good girl, said Mr. Thipps. "'Very reasonable, indeed. "'She was shocked, of course. "'That's very understandable. "'I was shocked myself, "'and it wouldn't be proper in a young woman "'not to be shocked under the circumstances. "'But she is really a helpful, energetic girl in a crisis, "'if you understand me. "'I consider myself very fortunate these days "'to have got a good, decent girl to do for me and mother, "'even though she is a bit careless "'and forgetful about little things, "'but that's only natural.' She was very sorry indeed about having left the bathroom window open. She really was. And though I was angry at first, seeing what's come of it, it wasn't anything to speak of. Not in the ordinary way, as you might say. Girls will forget things, you know, my lord. And really, she was so distressed, I didn't like to say too much to her. All I said was, ''It might have been burglars,'' I said. ''Remember that next time you leave a window open all night? This time it was a dead man,'' I said. ''I said.'' and that's unpleasant enough, but next time it might be burglars, I said, and all of us murdered in our beds. But the police inspector, Inspector Sugg, they called him from the yard. He was very sharp with her poor girl, quite frightened her, made her think he suspected her of something, though what good a body could be to her poor girl, I can't imagine. And so I told the inspector. He was quite rude to me, my lord. I may say I didn't like his manner at all. If you've anything definite to accuse Gladys or me of, Inspector, I said to him, bring it forward. That's what you have to do, I said. But I've yet to learn that you're paid to be rude to a gentleman in his own house. A house. Really, said Mr. Thipps, growing quite pink to the top of his head. He regularly roused me. Regularly roused me, my lord. And I'm a mild man as a rule. Sug all over, said Lord Peter. I know him. "'When he don't know what else to say, he's rude. "'Stands to reason you and the girl "'wouldn't go collecting bodies. "'Who'd want to saddle himself with a body? "'Difficulties usually to get rid of them. "'Have you got rid of this one yet, by the way?' "'It's still in the bathroom,' said Mr. Thipps. "'Inspector Sogg said nothing was to be touched "'till his men came in to move it. "'I'm expecting them at any time. "'If it would interest your lordship to have a look at it, "'thanks awfully.' "'said Lord Peter. "'I'd like to very much, "'if I'm not putting you out.' "'Not at all,' said Mr. Thipps. "'His manner, "'as he led the way along the passage, "'convinced Lord Peter of two things. first, that gruesome as his exhibit was, "'he rejoiced in the importance "'it reflected upon himself and his flat, "'and secondly, "'that Inspector Sugg had forbidden him "'to exhibit it to any one. "'The latter supposition was confirmed "'by the action of Mr. Thipps, who stopped to fetch the door-key from his bedroom, saying that he made it a rule to have two keys to every door in case of accident. The bathroom was in no way remarkable. It was long and narrow, the window being exactly over the head of the bath. The panes were of frosted glass, the frame wide enough to admit a man's body. Lord Peter stepped rapidly across to it, opened it, and looked out. The flat was the top one of the building and situated about the middle of the block. The bathroom window looked out upon the backyards of the flats, which were occupied by various small outbuildings, coal-holes, garages, and the like. Beyond these were the back gardens of a parallel line of houses. On the right rose the extensive edifice of St. Luke's Hospital, Battersea, with its grounds, and, connected with it by a covered way, the residence of the famous surgeon, Sir Julian Freke, who directed the surgical side of the great new hospital, and was in addition known in Harley Street as a distinguished neurologist with a highly individual point of view. This information was poured into Lord Peter's ear at considerable length by Mr. Thipps, who seemed to feel that the neighbourhood of anybody so distinguished shed a kind of halo of glory over Queen Caroline Mansions. We had him round here himself this morning, he said. About this horrid business, Inspector Sugg thought one of the young medical gentlemen at the hospital might have brought the corpse round for a joke, as you might say. They're always having bodies in the dissecting room. So Inspector Sugg went round to see Sir Julian this morning to ask if there was a body missing. He was very kind, was Sir Julian, very kind indeed, though he was at work when they got there, in the dissecting room. He looked up the books to see that all the bodies were accounted for, and then very obligingly came round here to look at this, he indicated the bath, and said he was afraid he couldn't help us. There was no corpse missing from the hospital, and this one didn't answer to the description of any they'd had. Nor to the description of any of the patients, I hope, suggested Lord Peter casually. At this grisly hint, Mr. Thipps turned pale. I didn't hear Inspector Sog inquire, he said with some agitation. "'What a very horrid thing that would be! "'God bless my soul, my lord! "'I never thought of it!' "'Well, if they had missed a patient, "'they'd probably have discovered it by now,' "'said Lord Peter. "'Let's have a look at this one.' "'He screwed his monocle into his eye, adding, "'I see you're troubled here with the soot blowing in. "'Beastly nuisance, ain't it? "'I get it too. "'Spoils all my books, you know. "'Here don't you trouble, "'if you don't care about looking at it.' He took from Mr. Thipps's hesitating hand the sheet which had been flung over the bath, and turned it back. The body which lay in the bath was that of a tall, stout man of about fifty. The hair, which was thick and black, and naturally curly, had been cut and parted by a master hand, and exuded a faint violet perfume, perfectly recognisable in the close air of the bathroom.' The features were thick, fleshy, and strongly marked, with prominent dark eyes and a long nose curving down to a heavy chin. The clean-shaven lips were full and sensual, and the dropped jaw showed teeth stained with tobacco. On the dead face the handsome pair of gold pince-nez mocked death with grotesque elegance. The fine gold chain curved over the naked breast, The legs lay stiffly stretched out, side by side. The arms reposed close to the body. The fingers were flexed naturally. Lord Peter lifted one arm, looked at the hand with a little frown. Bit of a dandy, your visitor, what? He murmured. Palmer violet and manicure. He bent again, slipping his hand beneath the head. The absurd eyeglasses slipped off, clattering into the bath, and the noise put the last touch to Mr. Thipp's growing nervousness. If you'll excuse me, he murmured, it makes me feel quite faint, it really does. He slipped outside, and he had no sooner done so than Lord Peter, lifting the body quickly and cautiously, turned it over and inspected it with his head on one side, bringing his monocle into play with the air of the late Joseph Chamberlain, approving a rare orchid. Then he laid the head over his arm and, bringing out the silver matchbox from his pocket, slipped it into the open mouth. Then, making the noise usually written tut-tut, he laid the body down, picked up the mysterious pince-nez, looked at it, put it on his nose and looked through it, made the same noise again, readjusted the pince-nez upon the nose of the corpse so as to leave no traces of interference for the irritation of Inspector Sugg, rearranged the body, returned to the window, and leaning out, reached upwards and sideways with his walking-stick, which he had somewhat incongruously brought along with him. Nothing appearing to come of these investigations, he withdrew his head, closed the window, and rejoined Mr. Thipps in the passage. Mr. Thipps, touched by this sympathetic interest in the younger son of a duke, took the liberty, on their return to the sitting-room, of offering him a cup of tea. Lord Peter, who had strolled over to the window and was admiring the outlook on Battersea Park, was about to accept when an ambulance came into view at the end of Prince of Wales Road. Its appearance reminded Lord Peter of an important engagement, and with a hurried, by Jove, he took his leave of Mr. Phipps. My mother sent kind regards and all that, he said, shaking hands fervently. "'Hopes you'll soon be down at Denver again. "'Good-bye, Mrs. Thipps,' he bawled kindly into the ear of the old lady. "'Oh, no, my dear sir, please don't trouble to come down.' "'He was none too soon. "'As he stepped out of the door and turned towards the station, "'the ambulance drew up from the other direction, "'and Inspector Sugg emerged from it with two constables. "'The inspector spoke to the officer on duty at the mansions "'and turned a suspicious gaze on Lord Peter's retreating back.' Dear old Sug, said that nobleman fondly. Dear, dear old bird. How he does hate me, to be sure. Chapter 2 Excellent, Bunter, said Lord Peter, sinking with a sigh into a luxurious armchair. I couldn't have done better myself. The thought of the Dante makes my mouth water, and the four sons of Amen. "'and you've saved me sixty pounds? "'That's glorious! "'What shall we spend it on, Bunter? "'Think of it, all ours, "'to do as we like with. "'For as Harold skimpole so rightly observes, sixty pounds saved is sixty pounds gained, "'and I'd reckoned on spending it all. "'It's your saving, Bunter, "'and properly speaking, your sixty pounds. "'What do we want? "'Anything in your department? "'Would you like anything altered in the flat?' "'Well, my lord, as your lordship is so good,' The man-servant paused, about to pour an old brandy into a liqueur-glass. "'Well, out with it, my bunter, you imperturbable old hypocrite. It's no good talking as if you were announcing dinner. You're spilling the brandy. The voice is Jacob's voice. But the hands are the hands of Esau. What does that blessed dark room of yours want now?' "'There's a double anastigmat with a set of supplementary lenses, my lord,' said Bunter. "'the note almost of religious fervour. "'If it was a case of forgery now, or footprints, "'I could enlarge them right up on the plate, "'or the wide-angled lens would be useful. "'It's as though the camera had eyes at the back of its head, my lord. "'Look, I've got it here.' "'He pulled a catalogue from his pocket "'and submitted it, quivering, to his employer's gaze. "'Lord Peter perused the description slowly.' The corners of his long mouth lifted into a faint smile. "'It's Greek to me,' he said, "'and fifty pounds seems a ridiculous price for a few bits of glass. I suppose, Bunter, you'd say seven hundred fifty pounds was a bit out of the way for a dirty old book in a dead language, wouldn't you?' "'It wouldn't be in my place to say so, my lord.' "'No, Bunter. I pay you two hundred pounds a year to keep your thoughts to yourself. Tell me, Bunter.' In these democratic days, don't you think that's unfair? No, my lord. You don't? Do you mind telling me frankly why you don't think it's unfair? Frankly, my lord. Your lordship is paid a nobleman's income to take Lady Worthington in to dinner and refrain from exercising your lordship's undoubted powers of repartee. Lord Peter considered this. That's your idea, is it, Bunter? Noblesse oblige for a consideration. "'I dare say you're right. "'Then you're better off than I am, "'because I'd have to behave myself to Lady Worthington "'if I hadn't a penny. "'Bunter, if I sacked you here and now, "'would you tell me what you think of me?' "'No, my lord. "'You'd have a perfect right to, my Bunter. "'If I sacked you, "'on top of drinking the kind of coffee you make, "'I'd deserve everything you could say of me. "'You're a demon for coffee, Bunter. "'I don't know how you do it, "'because I believe it to be witchcraft.' And I don't want to burn eternally. You can buy your cross eyed lens. Thank you, my lord. Have you finished the dining room? Not quite, my lord. Well, come back when you have. I have many things to tell you. Hello, who's that? The doorbell had rung sharply. Unless it's anybody interested, I'm not at home. Very good, my lord. Lord Peter's library was one of the most delightful bachelor rooms in London. Its scheme was black and primrose, its walls were lined with rare additions, and its chairs and Chesterfield sofa suggested the embraces of the houri. In one corner stood a black baby grand, a wood-fire leaped on a wide old-fashioned hearth, and the several vases on the chimney-piece were filled with ruddy and gold chrysanthemums. To the eyes of the young man who was ushered in from the raw November fog, it seemed not only rare and unattainable, but friendly and familiar, like a colourful and gilded paradise in a medieval painting. Mr. Parker, my lord. Lord Peter jumped up with genuine eagerness. My dear man, I'm delighted to see you. What a beastly foggy night, ain't it? Bunter, some more of that admirable coffee and another glass and the cigars. Parker, I hope you're full of crime. "'Nothing less than arson or murder will do for us to "'On such a night as this—' "'Bunter and I were just sitting down to carouse. "'I've got a Dante and a Caxton folio that is practically unique. "'At Sir Rafe Brocklebury's sale, Bunter, who did the bargaining, "'is going to have a lens which does all kinds of wonderful things with its eyes shut, "'and we both have got a body in a bath.' "'We both have got a body in a bath, "'for in spite of all temptations "'to go in for cheap sensations, "'we insist upon a body in a bath. "'Nothing less will do for us, Parker. "'It's mine at present, "'but we're going shares in it, "'property of the firm. "'Won't you join us? "'You really must put something in the jackpot. "'Perhaps you have a body. "'Oh, do have a body. "'Everybody welcome. "'Gin a body meet a body, "'hauled before the beak.' "'Gin a body jolly "'well knows who murdered a body, "'and that old Sugg "'is on the wrong tack. "'Need a body speak? "'Not a bit of it. "'He tips a glassy wink "'at yours truly, "'and yours truly read the truth.' "'Ah,' said Parker, "'I knew you'd been round "'to Queen Caroline Mansions. "'So have I, "'and met Sugg, "'and he told me he'd seen you. "'He was cross, too. "'Unwarrantable interference, "'he calls it. "'I knew he would.' "'said Lord Peter. "'I love taking a rise out of dear old Sugg. "'He's always so rude. "'I see by the star that he has excelled himself "'by taking the girl, Gladys what's her name, into custody. "'Sugg of the evening, beautiful Sugg. "'But what were you doing there?' "'To tell you the truth,' said Parker, "'I went round to see if the Semitic-looking stranger "'in Mr. Thipp's bath "'was by any extraordinary chance Sir Reuben Levy.' but he isn't. Sir Reuben Levy? Wait a minute, I saw something about that. I know. A headline. Mysterious disappearance of famous financier. What's it all about? I didn't read it carefully. Well, it's a bit odd, though I dare say it's nothing really. Old chap may have cleared for some reason, best known to himself. It only happened this morning, and nobody would have thought anything about it. "'only it happened to be the day "'on which he had arranged to attend "'a most important financial meeting "'and do some deal involving millions. "'I haven't got all the details, "'but I know he's got enemies "'who just as soon the deal didn't come off. "'So when I got wind of this fellow in the bath, "'I buzzed round to have a look at him. "'It didn't seem likely, of course, "'but unlikely things do happen in our profession. "'The funny thing is, "'Old Sugg has got bitten with the idea that it is him, "'and is wildly telegraphing to Lady Levy to come and identify him. "'But as a matter of fact, the man in the bath "'is no more Sir Reuben Levy than Adolph Beck, poor devil, was John Smith. "'Oddly enough, though, he would be really extraordinarily like Sir Reuben "'if he had a beard, and as Lady Levy is abroad with the family, "'somebody may say it's him.' "'and Sugg will build up a lovely theory "'like the Tower of Babel, "'and destined so to perish. "'Sugg's a beautiful, braying ass,' "'said Lord Peter. "'He's like a detective in a novel. "'Well, I don't know anything about Levy, "'but I've seen the body, "'and I should say the idea was preposterous "'upon the face of it. "'What do you think of the brandy? "'Unbelievable, Whimsy. "'Sort of thing makes one believe in heaven. "'But I want your yarn.' mind if Bunter hears it too? Invaluable man, Bunter, amazing fellow with a camera. And the odd thing is, he's always on the spot when I want my bath or my boots. I don't know when he develops things. I believe he does them in his sleep. Bunter! Yes, my lord. Stop fiddling about in there and get yourself the proper things to drink and join the merry throng. Certainly, my lord. Mr. Parker has a new trick, the vanishing financier. Absolutely no deception, a presto, pass, and where is he? Will some gentleman from the audience kindly step upon the platform and inspect the cabinet? Thank you, sir. The quickness of the and deceives the high. I'm afraid mine isn't much of a story, said Parker. It's just one of those simple things that offer no handle. Sir Reuben Levy dined last night with three friends at the Ritz. After dinner, the friends went to the theatre. He refused to go with them on account of an appointment. "'I haven't yet been able to trace the appointment, "'but anyhow, he returned home to his house, "'9A Park Lane, at twelve o'clock. "'Who saw him? "'The cook, who'd just gone up to bed, "'saw him on the doorstep, "'and heard him let himself in. "'He walked upstairs, "'leaving his greatcoat on the hall peg "'and his umbrella in the stand. "'You remember how it rained last night? "'He undressed and went to bed. "'Next morning he wasn't there.' "'That's all,' said Parker abruptly, with a wave of the hand. "'It isn't all. It isn't all. Daddy, go on. That's not half a story,' pleaded Lord Peter. "'But it is all. When his man came to call him, he wasn't there. The bed had been slept in, his pyjamas and all his clothes were there, the only odd thing being that they were thrown rather untidily on the ottoman at the foot of the bed, instead of being neatly folded on a chair.' as is Sir Reuben's custom, looking as though he had been rather agitated or unwell. No clean clothes were missing, no suit, no boots, nothing. The boots he had worn were in his dressing-room as usual. He had washed and cleaned his teeth and done all the usual things. The housemaid was down cleaning the hall at half-past six, and can swear that nobody came in or out after that so one is forced to suppose that a respectable middle-aged Hebrew financier either went mad between twelve and six a.m. and walked quietly out of the house in his birthday suit on a November night, or else was spirited away like the lady in the Ingoldsby legends, body and bones, leaving only a heap of crumpled clothes behind him. Was the front door bolted? That's the sort of question you would ask straight off. It took me an hour to think of it. Now, contrary to custom, there was only the Yale lock on the door. On the other hand, some of the maids had been given leave to go to the theatre, and Sir Reuben may quite conceivably have left the door open under the impression they had not come in. Such a thing has happened before. And that's really all, really all, except for one very trifling circumstance. I love trifling circumstances, said Lord Peter, with childish delight. So many men have been hanged by trifling circumstances. What was it? Sir Reuben and Lady Levy, who are a most devoted couple, always share the same room. Lady Levy, as I said before, is in Mentone at the moment for her health. In her absence, Sir Reuben sleeps in the double bed as usual, and invariably on his own side, the outside of the bed. "'Last night he put the two pillows together "'and slept in the middle, "'or, if anything, rather closer to the wall than otherwise. "'The housemaid, who was a most intelligent girl, "'noticed this when she went up to make the bed, "'and with really admirable detective instinct "'refused to touch the bed or let anybody else touch it, "'though it wasn't till later "'that they actually sent for the police. "'Was nobody in the house but Sir Reuben and the servants? "'No.' Lady Levy was away with her daughter and her maid. The valet, cook, parlour-maid, housemaid, and kitchen-maid were the only people in the house, and naturally wasted an hour or two squawking and gossiping. I got there about ten. What have you been doing since? Trying to get on the tracks of Sir Reuben's appointment last night, since, with the exception of the cook, his appointer was the last person who saw him before his disappearance. "'there may be some quite simple explanation, "'though I'm dashed if I can think of one for the moment. "'Hang it all, a man doesn't come in and go to bed "'and walk away again mid-noddings-on "'in the middle of the night. "'He may have been disguised. "'I thought of that. "'In fact, it seems the only possible explanation. "'It's deuced odd, Whimsy. "'An important city man, "'on the eve of an important transaction, "'without a word of warning to anybody,' "'slips off in the middle of the night, "'disguised down to his skin, "'leaving behind his watch, purse, check-book, "'and, most mysterious and important of all, "'his spectacles, "'without which he can't see a step, "'as he is extremely short-sighted. "'He—' "'That is important,' interrupted whimsy. "'You are sure he didn't take a second pair?' "'His man vouches for it that he had only two pairs, "'one of which was found on his dressing-table,' "'and the other in the drawer where it is always kept. "'Lord Peter whistled. "'You've got me there, Parker. "'Even if he'd gone out to commit suicide, he'd have taken those. "'So you'd think. "'Or the suicide would have happened the first time he started across the road. "'However, I didn't overlook the possibility. "'I've got particulars of all today's street accidents, "'and I can lay my hand on my heart and say that none of them is Sir Reuben. "'Besides he took his latch-key with him, "'which looks as though he meant to come back. "'Have you seen the men he dined with?' "'I found two of them at his club. "'They said that he seemed in the best of health and spirits, "'spoke of looking forward to joining Lady Levy later on, "'perhaps at Christmas, "'and referred with great satisfaction "'to this morning's business transaction, "'in which one of them, a man called Anderson of Wyndham's, "'was himself concerned.' and up till about nine o'clock, anyhow, he had no apparent intention or expectation of disappearing. None, unless he was a most consummate actor. Whatever happened to change his mind must have happened either at the mysterious appointment which he kept after dinner, or while he was in bed between midnight and five-thirty a.m. Well, Bunter, said Lord Peter, what do you make of it? "'Not in my department, my lord, "'except it is odd that a gentleman "'who was too flurried or unwell "'to fold his clothes as usual "'should remember to clean his teeth "'and put his boots out. "'Those are two things that quite frequently "'get overlooked, my lord.' "'If you mean anything personal, Bunter,' "'said Lord Peter, "'I can only say that I think the speech "'an unworthy one. "'It's a sweet little problem, Parker mine. "'Look here.' "'I don't want to butt in, "'but I should dearly love "'to see that bedroom to-morrow. Tis not that I mistrust thee, dear, "'but I should uncommonly like to see it. "'Say me not, nay. "'Take another drop of brandy "'and a villa-villa, "'but say not, say not, nay. "'Of course you can come and see it. "'You'll probably find lots of things "'I've overlooked,' said the other, equably, "'accepting the proffered hospitality. "'Parker Acushla, "'you're an honour to Scotland Yard.' "'I look at you, when Sug appears a myth, a fable, an idiot boy, "'spawned in a moonlight hour by some fantastic poet's brain. Sug is too perfect to be possible. "'What does he make of the body, by the way?' Sug says,' replied Parker, with precision, "'that the body died from a blow on the back of the neck. "'The doctor told him that. "'He says it's been dead a day or two. "'The doctor told him that, too.' "'He says it's the body of a well-to-do Hebrew of about fifty. "'Anybody could have told him that. "'He says it's ridiculous to suppose it came in through the window "'without anybody knowing anything about it. "'He says it probably walked in through the front door "'and was murdered by the household. "'He's arrested the girl because she's short and frail-looking "'and quite unequal to downing a tall and sturdy Semite with a poker. "'He'd arrest Thipps, only Thipps was away in Manchester all yesterday.' and the day before, and didn't come back till late last night. In fact, he wanted to arrest him, till I reminded him that if the body had been a day or two dead, little Thipps couldn't have done him in at ten-thirty last night. But he'll arrest him to-morrow as an accessory, and the old lady with the knitting, too, I shouldn't wonder. "'Well, I'm glad the little man has so much of an alibi,' said Lord Peter. "'Though if you're only gluing your faith to cadaveric lividity, rigidity, "'and all the other quiddities, "'You must be prepared to have some sceptical beast "'of a prosecuting counsel "'walk slap-bang through the medical evidence. "'Remember Impey Biggs defending in that Chelsea tea-shop affair? six bloomin' medicos contradicting each other in the box, "'an old Impey, elocute, and abnormal cases "'from Glayster and Dixon Mann "'till the eyes of the jury reeled in their heads. "'Are you prepared to swear, doctor Thinghamtide? "'that the onset of rigor mortis indicates the hour of death "'without the possibility of error?' "'So far as my experience goes, in the majority of cases,' "'says the doctor, all stiff.' "'Ah!' says Biggs. "'But this is a court of justice, doctor, not a parliamentary election. "'We can't get on without a minority report. "'The law, doctor Thingham Thingam-Tight, respects the rights of the minority, "'alive or dead.' "'Some ass laughs, and old Biggs sticks his chest out and gets impressive.' "'Gentlemen, this is no laughing matter. "'My client, an upright and honourable gentleman, "'is being tried for his life, for his life, gentlemen, "'and it is the business of the prosecution to show his guilt, "'if they can, without a shadow of doubt. "'Now, doctor Thingham Thingam-Tight, I ask you again, "'can you solemnly swear, without the least shadow of doubt, "'probable, possible shadow of doubt, "'that this unhappy woman met her death "'neither sooner nor later than Thursday evening?' "'A probable opinion? "'Gentlemen, we are not Jesuits. "'We are straightforward Englishmen. "'You cannot ask a British-born jury "'to convict any man on the authority "'of a probable opinion. "'Hum of applause.' "'Big's man was guilty all the same,' said Parker. "'Of course he was. "'But he was acquitted all the same. "'And what you've just said is libel.' Whimsy walked over to the bookshelf "'and took down a volume of medical jurisprudence.' Rigor mortis can only be stated in a very general way. Many factors determine the result. Cautious brute. On the average, however, stiffening will have begun, neck and jaw, five to six hours after death. Hmm. In all likelihood have passed off in the bulk of cases by the end of thirty-six hours. Under certain circumstances, however, it may appear unusually early, or be retarded unusually long. Helpful, ain't it, Parker? Brown Sicar states three and a half minutes after death, in certain cases not until lapse of sixteen hours after death, present as long as twenty-one days thereafter. Lord! Modifying factors, age, muscular state, or febrile diseases, or what temperature of environment is high, and so on and so on, any blooming thing. Never mind. You can run the argument for what it's worth to sug. You won't know any better. "'He tossed the book away. "'Come back to facts. "'What did you make of the body?' "'Well,' said the detective, "'not very much. "'I was puzzled, frankly. "'I should say he had been a rich man, "'but self-made, "'and that his good fortune "'had come to him fairly recently. "'Ah, you noticed the calluses on the hands. "'I thought you wouldn't miss that. "'Both his feet were badly blistered. "'He had been wearing tight shoes.' Walking a long way in them too, said Lord Peter To get such blisters as that Did that strike you as odd, in a person evidently well off? Well, I don't know The blisters were two or three days old He might have got stuck in the suburbs one night, perhaps Last train gone and no taxi and had to walk home Possibly There were some little red marks all over his back And one leg I couldn't quite account for I saw them What did you make of them? I'll tell you afterwards. Go on. He was very long-sighted, oddly long-sighted for a man in the prime of life. The glasses were like a very old man's. By the way, they had a very beautiful and remarkable chain of flat links chased with a pattern. It strikes me he might be traced through it. I've just put an advertisement in the Times about it, said Lord Peter. Go on. "'He had had the glasses some time. "'They had been mended twice. "'Beautiful, Parker, beautiful. "'Did you realise the importance of that? "'Not specially, I'm afraid. "'Why? "'Never mind. "'Go on.' "'He was probably a sullen, ill-tempered man. "'His nails were filed down to the quick, "'as though he habitually bit them, "'and his fingers were bitten as well. "'He smoked quantities of cigarettes without a holder. "'He was particular about his personal appearance.' Did you examine the room at all? I didn't get a chance. I couldn't find March in the way of footprints. Sargon Company had tramped all over the place, to say nothing of little Thipps and the maid, but I noticed a very indefinite patch just behind the head of the bath, as though something damp might have stood there. You could hardly call it a print. It rained hard all last night, of course. Yes. Did you notice that the soot on the windowsill was vaguely marked? I did, said Whimsy, and I examined it hard with this little fellow, but I could make nothing of it except that something or other had rested on the sill. He drew out his monocle and handed it to Parker. My word, that's a powerful lens! It is, said Whimsy, and jolly useful when you want to take a good squint at something and look like a bally-fool all the time— "'only it don't do to wear it permanently. "'If people see you full face, they say, "'Dear me, how weak the sight of that eye must be! "'Still it's useful. "'Sug and I explored the ground at the back of the building,' "'went on Parker. "'But there wasn't a trace. "'That's interesting. "'Did you try the roof?' "'No. "'We'll go over it tomorrow. "'The gutter's only a couple of feet off the top of the window. "'I measured it with my stick.' The gentleman scouts vade mecum, I call it. It's marked off in inches. Uncommonly handy companion at times. There's a sword inside and a compass in the head. I got it made specially. Anything more? I'm afraid not. Let's hear your version, Whimsy. Well, I think you've got most of the points. There are just one or two little contradictions. For instance, here's a man who wears expensive gold-rimmed pince-nez and has had them long enough to be mended twice yet his teeth are not merely discoloured but badly decayed and look as if he'd never cleaned them in his life. There are four molars missing on one side and three on the other and one front tooth broken right across. He's a man careful of his personal appearance, as witness his hair and his hands. What do you say to that? Oh, these self-made men of low origin don't think much about teeth and are terrified of dentists. True, "'but one of the molars has a broken edge so rough "'that it had made a sore place on the tongue. "'Nothing's more painful. "'Do you mean to tell me a man would put up with that "'if he could afford to get the tooth filed?' "'Well, people are queer. "'I've known servants endure agonies "'rather than step over a dentist's doormat. "'How did you see that, Whimsy? "'Had a look inside. Electric torch,' said Lord Peter. "'Handy, little gadget. Looks like a match-box.' Well, I dare say it's all right. But i just draw your attention to it. Second point. Gentleman with hair smelling of palmer violet and manicured hands and all the rest of it never washes inside his ears. Full of wax. Nasty. You've got me there, Whimsy. I never noticed it. Still old bad habits die hard. Righto, put it down at that. Third point. Gentleman with the manicure and the brilliantine and all the rest of it "'suffers from fleas. "'By Jove, you're right. "'Flea bites. "'It never occurred to me. "'No doubt about it, old son. "'The marks were faint and old, but unmistakable. "'Of course, now you mention it. "'Still, that might happen to anybody. "'I loosed a whopper in the best hotel in Lincoln "'the week before last. "'I hope it bit the next occupier. "'Oh, all these things might happen to anybody, separately. Fourth point.' "'Gentleman who uses palma-violet for his hair, etc., etc., "'washes his body in strong carbolic soap, "'so strong that the smell hangs about twenty-four hours later. "'Carbolic to get rid of the fleas. "'I will say for you, Parker, you've an answer for everything. Fifth point, carefully got-up gentleman with manicured, "'though masticated fingernails, has filthy black toenails.' "'which look as if they hadn't been cut for years. "'All of a piece with habits is indicated. "'Yes, I know, but such habits. "'Now sixth and last point. "'This gentleman with the intermittently gentlemanly habits "'arrives in the middle of a pouring wet night "'and apparently through the window, "'when he has already been twenty-four hours dead, "'and lies down quietly in Mr. Thipp's bath, "'unseasonably dressed in a pair of pince-nez, "'not a hair on his head, "'is ruffled. "'The hair has been cut so recently "'that there are quite a number of little short hairs "'stuck on his neck in the sides of the bath, "'and he has shaved so recently "'that there is a line of dried soap on his cheek. "'Whimsy! "'Wait a minute. "'And dried soap in his mouth.' "'Bunter got up and appeared suddenly at the detective's elbow, "'the respectful manservant all over.' A little more brandy, sir, he murmured. Whimsy, said Parker. You are making me feel cold all over. He emptied his glass, stared at it as though he were surprised to find it empty, set it down, got up, walked across to the bookcase, turned round, stood with his back against it and said, Look here, Whimsy, you've been reading detective stories. You're talking nonsense. No, I ain't. Said Lord Peter, sleepily. Uncommon good incident for a detective story, though, what? Bunter uh, will write one, and you shall illustrate it with photographs. Soap in his rubbish, said Parker. It was something else, some discoloration. No, said Lord Peter. There were hairs as well, bristly ones. He had a beard. He took his watch from his pocket and drew out a couple of longish, stiff, "'hairs,' which he had imprisoned between the inner and the outer case. "'Parker turned them over once or twice in his fingers, "'looked at them close to the light, examined them with a the lens, "'handed them to the impassable bunter, and said, "'Do you mean to tell me, Whimsy, that any man alive would—' "'He laughed harshly. "'Shave off his beard with his mouth open, "'and then go and get killed with his mouth full of hairs? "'You're mad!' "'I don't tell you so,' said Whimsy. "'You policemen are all alike. "'Only one idea in your skulls. "'Blast if I can make out why you're ever appointed. "'He was shaved after he was dead. "'Pretty, ain't it? "'Uncommonly jolly little job for the barber, what? "'Here, sit down, man, and don't be an ass, "'stumpin' about the room like that. "'Worse things happen in war. "'This is only a blinkin' old shillin' shocker. "'But I'll tell you what, Parker.' "'We're up against a criminal, the criminal, "'the real artist and blighter with imagination, "'real, artistic, finished stuff. "'I am enjoying this, Parker.'" Chapter 3 Lord Peter finished a Scarlatti sonata and sat looking thoughtfully at his own hands. The fingers were long and muscular, with wide-flat joints and square tips. When he was playing, his rather hard grey eyes softened, and his long indeterminate mouth hardened in compensation. At no other time had he any pretensions to good looks, and at all times he was spoilt by a long, narrow chin and a long, receding forehead, accentuated by the brushed-back sleekness of his toe-coloured hair, labour-papers softening down the chin, caricatured him as a typical aristocrat. "'That's a wonderful instrument,' said Parker. "'It ain't so bad,' said Lord Peter. "'But Scarlotti wants a harpsichord. Piano's too modern, all thrills and overtones. No good for our job, Parker. Have you come to any conclusion?' "'The man in the bath,' said Parker methodically was not a well-off man careful of his personal appearance. He was a labouring man, unemployed, but who had only recently lost his employment. He had been tramping about looking for a job when he met with his end. Somebody killed him, and washed him, and scented him, and shaved him in order to disguise him, and put him into Thipp's bath without leaving a trace. Conclusion Conclusion THE MURDERER WAS A POWERFUL MAN, SINCE HE KILLED HIM WITH A SINGLE BLOW ON THE NECK, A MAN OF COOL HEAD AND MASTERLY INTELLECT, SINCE HE DID ALL THIS GHASTLY BUSINESS WITHOUT LEAVING A MARK, A MAN OF WEALTH AND REFINEMENT, SINCE HE HAD ALL THE APPARATUS OF AN ELEGANT TOILET HANDY, AND A MAN OF BIZARRE AND ALMOST PERVERTED IMAGINATION, AS IS SHOWN IN THE TWO HORRIBLE TOUCHES OF PUTTING THE BODY IN THE BATH AND OF ADORNING IT WITH A PAIR OF pince-nez. "'He is a poet of crime,' said Whimsy. "'By the way, your difficulty about the pince is cleared up. "'Obviously the pince never belonged to the body. "'That only makes a fresh puzzle. "'One can't suppose the murderer left them in that obliging manner "'as a clue to his own identity. "'We can hardly suppose that. "'I'm afraid this man possessed what most criminals lack, "'a sense of humour. "'Rather macabre humour. "'True.' "'but a man who can afford to be humorous at all "'in such circumstances is a terrible fellow. "'I wonder what he did with the body "'between the murder and depositing it Shea Thipps. "'Then there are more questions. "'How did he get it there, and why? "'Was it brought in at the door, "'as Sugg of Our Heart suggests, "'or through the window, as we think, "'on the not very adequate testimony "'of a smudge on the window sill? "'Had the murderer accomplices?' Is little Thipps really in it, or the girl? It don't do to put the notion out of court merely because Sug inclines to it. Even idiots occasionally speak the truth accidentally. If not, why was Thipps selected for such an abominable practical joke? Has anybody got a grudge against Thipps? Who are the people in the other flats? We must find out that. Does Thipps play the piano at midnight over their heads, or damage the reputation of the staircase by bringing home dubiously respectable ladies? Are there unsuccessful architects thirsting for his blood? Damn it all, Parker! There must be a motive somewhere. Can't have a crime without a motive, you know. A madman, suggested Parker, doubtfully. What a deuced lot of method in his madness! He hasn't made a mistake, not one, unless leaving hairs in the corpse's mouth can be called a mistake. "'Well, anyhow, it's not Levy, you're right there. "'I say, old thing, neither your man nor mine "'has left much clue to go upon, has he? "'And there don't seem to be any motives knocking about, either. "'And we seem to be two suits of clothes short in last night's work. So Reuben makes tracks without so much as a fig-leaf, "'and a mysterious individual turns up with a pince-nez, "'which is quite useless for purposes of decency. "'Dash it all!' "'If only I had some good excuse "'for taking up this body-case officially!' "'The telephone-bell rang. "'The silent bunter, "'whom the other two had almost forgotten, "'padded across to it. "'It's an elderly lady, my lord,' he said. "'I think she's deaf. "'I can't make her hear anything, "'but she's asking for your lordship.' "'Lord Peter seized the receiver "'and yelled into it a "'Hello!' "'That might have cracked the vulcanite.' He listened for some minutes with an incredulous smile, which gradually broadened into a grin of delight. At length he screamed, All right, all right, several times, and rang off. By Jove! he announced, beaming. Sport an old bird, it's old Mrs. Thipps, deaf as a post. Never used the phone before, but determined. Perfect Napoleon! The incomparable Sugg has made a discovery and arrested little Thipps, "'Old lady abandoned in the flat. Thipps's last shriek to her, "'Tell Lord Peter Whimsy." "'Old girl undaunted. "'Wrestles with telephone book. "'Wakes up the people at the exchange. "'Won't take no for an answer, "'not being able to hear it. "'Gets through. "'Says, "'Will I do what I can? "'Says she would feel safe "'in the hands of a real gentleman. "'Oh, Parker! "'Parker! "'I could kiss her. "'I really could,' "'as Thipps says. "'I will write to her instead.' No, hang it, Parker. We'll go round. Bunter, get your infernal machine and the magnesium. I say. We'll go into partnership. Pool the two cases and work em out together. You shall see my body tonight, Parker, and I'll look for your wandering Jew tomorrow. I feel so happy I shall explode. Oh, Sug! Sug! How art thou Sugfied? Bunter, my shoes. I say, Parker, I suppose yours are rubber soled. Not? "'Tut-tut, you mustn't go out like that. "'We'll lend you a pair. "'Gloves? "'Here. "'My stick? "'My torch? "'The lamp black? "'The forceps? "'Knife? "'Pill-boxes? "'All complete?' "'Certainly, my lord.' "'Oh, Bunter, don't look so offended. "'I mean no harm. "'I believe in you. "'I trust you. "'What money have I got?' "'That'll do. "'I knew a man once, Parker, "'who let a world-famous poisoner "'slip through his fingers "'because the machine on the underground "'took nothing but pennies.' There was a queue at the booking office, and the man at the barrier stopped him, and while they were arguing about accepting a five-pound note, which was all he had, for a twopenny ride to Baker Street, the criminal had sprung into a circle train and was next heard of in Constantinople, disguised as an elderly Church of England clergyman, touring with his niece. Are we all ready? Go. They stepped out, Bunter carefully switching off the lights behind them. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Whose Body, Part 1 of 7 by Dorothy Sayers. If you have enjoyed this book, feel free to visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and sign up to be a financial supporter. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook. And we also have many audiobooks available right now for free.